This is Unsupervised Learning, a podcast about the latest in the rapidly developing AI landscape and what it means for businesses in the world. I'm Jacob Efron. I'm joined by Jason Warner, and we're excited to kick off the inaugural episode of Unsupervised Learning. First guest is Clem, the CEO of Hugging Face, a company really at the epicenter of the AI community. And we had a really interesting conversation. You know, we touched on trends in who's using the Hugging Face platform, the future of closed source versus open source and machine learning, how enterprise AI teams will evolve, future of AI safety, uh, and even heard Clem compare the large foundation models to Formula One cars. So definitely stay tuned. It's, a, it's an interesting point. Um, but a particularly fun one to do with Jason, who was the former CTO of GitHub, obviously a ton in common with Hugging Face, and it was just a blast hearing him and Clem go back and forth on the benefits of open source, effectively building community. So I think folks are really going to enjoy this one. Uh, and without further ado, here's episode one. Today, we're excited to kick things off with a pretty much perfect first guest. Can't, can't think of a better person than uh, Clem, the co-founder and CEO of Hugging Face. Hugging Face is a, is a pivotal part of the ML ecosystem today, really building the GitHub of machine learning, a place where developers create, discover, collaborate on ML models, data sets, and applications. And Hugging Face also offers a, a set of hosted services on top of this. The company has raised you know, $160 million, was last valued at $2 billion in May. Some great investors, including Lux, Edition, Sequoia, Co2, and over 10,000 companies using the, uh, the platform today. So as we dig into these spaces, you know, can't think of a better first guest. Clem, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, to kick things off, I think would just be great to get a bit of background on how Hugging Face came to be and what you do today. As, as I understand it, there's a pretty interesting uh, pivot story here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. as it uh, sometimes happened for, for startups, right? When we studied Hugging Face, we were three co-founders, Right, with a scientist, an engineer, and someone more on the product side. And when we kind of like talked about our shared passion for AI and machine learning, we were like, okay, what can we do that is both kind of like scientifically challenging, but fun at the same time? And we ended up starting by building this kind of like Tamaguchi AI, AI friend, kind of like a chat GPT, but uh, much more entertaining <laughs> than, than chat GPT. And we actually did that for a bit more than, than three years. That's, that's what we raised our first rounds of, of funding on. And as it sometimes happened, we kind of like started to share a little bit what, what we were building. Some of our friends, some other companies started to ask us like, oh, how, how do you do that? It's, it's working pretty well. It's, it's really fast. It's, it's able to talk about a lot of different, different topics. So using a lot of different data sets, a lot of different models. And when we started open sourcing some of that, the usage and the adoption uh, really blew up right from the right from the start. Right, like companies started to to use this, researchers started to use it to share their models, to collaborate, and that's really what what took us from our first kind of like uh, vision and and product uh, to what we are now, which is, as you said, the most used platform for companies to build machine learning and integrate machine learning into their products, their workflows, or their features. We, we can't let you answer that question without talking about the hugging face. So, <laughs> so, so walk us through the thought process. I will last, when I remember meeting you and asking you that question, I love the answer. So let's tell a broader audience what you're doing there. 
Yeah, the, when we uh, when we started the company, a running joke with with my co-founders uh, was that we wanted to be the first company to go public with an emoji instead of the three-letter ticker. You know, like when when you go on the Nasdaq. So we absolutely wanted an emoji, and then we were just using and loving so much the hugging face emoji that we were like, okay, let's let's go for that. At the beginning, we thought we would keep the name maybe for a few weeks, for, for a few <laughs> months. Uh, but then the community started to use it everywhere, to put it in social network when we were posting things, to add it to, to their T-shirts or to, to other swag. So much so that at some point we were like, okay, there's no way we're going to change this. Uh, we, we need to keep it. And, and that's why we still have this name, Hugging Face, and this emoji, the Hugging Face emoji as, as our logo. I mean, I, I love it. Um, I remember even when I was still at GitHub, I'm um, talking to some folks and they were asking about various things in various ecosystems. I'm like, oh, of course, in the ML space, you got hugging face. And everyone thought I was joking. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> go check out hugging face. It's an actual web address and everything. It's like, just go do it. And then they, um, yeah. they came back and they're like, okay, we get it now. Let's talk about that name. But awesome. Yeah. And, and we got a whole bunch of questions that we have here that we want to go into in, in depth. But it's been a little while since you and I caught up. And I got to ask you, What's life been like for you and Hugging Face since ChatGPT blew up um, and basically set the non-ML world on fire? It feels like the ML world is basically kind of like, hey, we're, we've been here. We understand this type of stuff. But all of a sudden, ChatGPT, my grandmother, you know, my uncle in yeah. Connecticut, they're all talking about it type of deal. Like, what, what's life yeah. been like for you guys since that happened? It's been amazing, frankly. Um, we we were not so much surprised by the technical capabilities of it, just because yeah. we've been working in the field for for some time, and and we really saw the progression to get to where we are now. But I think what it did is really unleash the creativity of everyone when it comes to thinking about AI and, and machine learning. So I feel like now when I, when I talk to CEOs of companies, when, when I talk about, you know, VP engineering, uh, when, when I talk about product people, they understand much more the, the capabilities of, of AI. Um, and they have tons of ideas. So in general, for the field, I think it's going to be very positive in unleashing this, this creativity for, for everyone to see that they can use AI and machine learning for every single thing that, that they do. And we've actually seen that with, uh, with usage of, of the platform since, uh, since the launch of uh, ChatGPT. Actually, the usage of Hugging Face has, has exploded. I imagine it would, particularly with things like even Carpathy putting up all his, hey, make a chat GPT, that sort of thing, and like all these instruction sets. I'm, it, it feels like, you know, as someone, you've been obviously in this deeper than me, but I've been in it for a long time as well. But it feels like this is the actual tipping point for mass market type of stuff. 2000 or 2017, when we had that last wave of type of AI, what, what not, this is different. This feels like it's like, nope, we're past that now. We're, it's in the zeitgeist. We're, we're an AI forward entire world at this point now. Yeah, we moved from niche to mainstream. You know, I mean, when, when we look at Hugging Face, I think we, we crossed 250,000 models that have been shared on the platform. I think in, in January, we've had more than, than 50 million page views on Hugging Face, which, you know, a few years ago, you would have said that, you know, a machine learning platform would get like 15 million page views a month. 
people would have told you like uh, no way because because yeah. machine learning was still a niche Yes. So, yes. Uh, and you mentioned kind of like the, the users, you know, obviously you've seen a, a spike in usage, you know, any, any difference in kind of the type of people that are coming to Hugging Face or, or that you're talking to, you know, that, you, that you've noticed since kind of this mainstreaming? I think what's interesting is that it's getting broader in terms of like the domains and the use cases than it was before. And I mean, that, that follows the expansion of, of the Hugging Face platform too. You know, I, f- I feel like a few years, a few months ago, it was mostly concentrated on uh, some subset of tasks, right? More like uh, NLP, more more around text or some other specific task, for example, text to image, right? With, with stable diffusion that, that we've uh, all heard of. But now I feel like because some of these tools are quite generalist, people are applying machine learning to a whole range of domains from, you know, text to uh, audio, you know, time series. We're starting to see a lot of companies using machine learning for time series, like your Uber ETA, for example. We're starting to see a lot of biology. We're starting to see a lot of chemistry. We're starting to see a lot of code. So um, it's really kind of like a... Made the scope and the domains of usage of of, uh, of machine learning and interests broader than than it was before. I'm I'm super curious about this too because obviously you sit at such a unique intersection of all the things. It's like you know we talked about Huggy Faces, the GitHub for the ML space, but obviously like sitting inside GitHub, we can watch the entire software industry evolve and understand what was happening. It was fascinating, right? You can see the rise of JavaScript at one point or like which new language or framework or whatever was kind of emerging. You can see all that. It's amazing. But now let's ask a different question here. I would say that we're living in a post LLM world at this point and all that sort of stuff. How do you see the entire ecosystem evolving? Where does open source models play in the future of this? You know, OpenAI has a very specific stance on what they want to do with their models, their weights, and things of that nature. But, you know, there's a, as I believe, code wants to be open. I believe models are going to want to be open too and all that sort of stuff. How do you view this? What does, what you know, how, how does Hugging Face think about this, but specifically Clem too? So first, it's, uh, I think, useful to remind everyone that all current machine learning is based on open science and, and open source, right? I think that's the number one driver for the progress of the field in the past few years, right? If it wouldn't have been as open as it's been, maybe it would have taken us 10 years, 20 years, 50 years to get to where we are today. And so at the you know macro level, I think it's important to remember that the more open science and and the more open source things are the faster we can we can progress and evolve as as a field so that's really something that we should aim at and foster i think in in the ecosystem now that being said you know it's it's also fairly natural that some companies or some organizations want to open source or not open source based on also their you know commercial goals Right, and that that was the same thing in on GitHub, right? Not not all companies were using GitHub in in a public mode, uh, and and I I, what thing, I think, yeah. I was gonna say I think it's a really important point that you bring up, which is that it's all based upon public, uh, public knowledge is out there already, and it's an implementation field. The models out there, and it's one of those things where you know we talk about things that if you're not in the space or maybe if you, you don't fully understand that 
a lot of the value that's derived here is academically out there already. It's written in papers. It may not be accessible in the format that we thought of it in, in other domains as accessible, but that's what Hugging Face exists for, is to make that stuff more accessible for folks out there. And the fact that OpenAI is doing this remarkable work, or Anthropic or other large language models are doing this incredible work, that knowledge is available to the folks. This is exactly why GitHub and Hugging Face have been so important to the space, is most things exist on GitHub. If you want to go see how the Linux kernel works, you can go look at it. But if you want to yeah. see the basis for what OpenAI has been building upon for a while, you can go look at it and figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the openness and transparency is going to be even more important for machine learning than it's been for traditional software. Because if you think of machine learning compared to traditional software, to me, the main difference is that machine learning is science-driven. It, it's really driven by scientific improvements of, of the architectures, of the, of the models, of the data approaches. And historically, you know, science has always been an open and, and collaborative endeavor, right? I mean, scientists, they want to contribute to the advancement of, of science. They want to publish research papers. They are actually evolving in their careers based on their, their publications, Yep. And so I think machine learning hopefully is going to be even more open and more based on open and collaborative approaches than, than, than traditional softwares. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's, there's room for proprietary or closed source approaches, especially as, you know, I think they create new and different distributions for, for machine learning. And I think it's, it's something that's, always always happened like if you think about you know software you have squarespace or wix or like platforms like that that are kind of like making it easier to to build technologies and then you have github which is kind of like more open and, and more kind of like a platform for companies to to build or you've always had you know like the elastic search on on one side and, and the algolia or like other more like close source search search companies on, on the other side so i think uh you know both approaches are a part of the of the ecosystem are contributing to moving the field forward and will always kind of like uh, coexist. And the interesting thing is that on, on the Hugging Face platform, we have uh, 250,000 models. Exactly half of them are private. Uh, it's 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 uh, and it's been it's been like that for for quite a while. It's it's been like that for for the past two years. And so ultimately, uh, you know. It's uh, it's good headlines to think, okay, open source is going to kill proprietary or proprietary is going to kill open source. The truth is that you'll always have both that are kind mm -hmm. of like filling different needs uh, and providing different different tools for, for companies depending on their use cases. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think I've heard you before refer to these kind of closed models like OpenAI and Anthropic as like the Formula One cars of, of the space. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you've obviously been at the forefront of leading some of the open source efforts to kind of come up with foundation model efforts, right? Like big science is Bloom. And, you know, one thing that seems to be happening is it seems like some of these players like OpenAI Anthropic are going to just throw more and more money at compute, right? For like the cutting edge model. And I wonder how you think about like one, you know, the limits of what the open source community can fund on just the pure compute side. And then two, kind of the implications of that for when are these Formula One models going to make the most sense versus like the, the open source alternatives? Yeah, the reason why I compare these like very large models to Formula One is 
because they're, they're good marketing, right? <laughs> they, they say, well, Formula One cars are, are really good marketing. They are very impressive, right? Like the, the same way Formula Car is, is really impressive. But the truth is, uh, for most people out there, uh, they don't need a Formula One car to go to work. They need kind of like a good normal car that is not going to cost uh, millions of dollars, not only to build, but also to, to run and, and, and to drive. And that's, that's what we're seeing, you know. Probably kind of like these large proprietary models are going to be useful for some use cases. Let's say you're Google, you know, and you want like a very generalist model to be able to answer everything. That's, that's great to have a model like that, right? But the truth is, if you want search to work on your website, you actually want a model that is like much smaller, much faster, usually more accurate if you specialize it on your, on your own data and just cheaper to run, right? You, you don't want it to cost 10 cents for, for every prediction that, that it makes. So if you look on, on the Hugging Face platform, what's interesting is that uh, even if we have models from, you know, a few million parameters, which is considered small in, in today's world, up to 180 billion parameters, right? We, on the platform, we host like the largest language models out, out there, like you mentioned, Bloom or, or others. Actually, most of the usage today is for models from 500 million to 10 billion parameters. And it's just because, you know, they're faster, cheaper to run, usually more accurate if you train them on your data. So again, I mean, I think it's it's a matter of like use cases. You'll want to use one sort of model for for some use cases, others for other kind of use cases, and and they solve kind of like uh, different problems. I I would say. Yeah, and I can't see most organizations in the world wanting the everything model, particularly with the complexities that come with those types of models at some point, particularly like these large enterprises saying like, hey, we don't actually know the output of some of the questions that might be asked to this. And so we wanna get more specific and we wanna like kind of constrain some of those. Um, and just like with, you know, just code in general, but like models specifically here, a, a bunch of different modalities are going to emerge and adapt. And, you know, they're gonna, like you said, the Formula One car to the sedan to the, to the minivan and all that sort of stuff. There's gonna be a bunch of different things that exist in the world that look like this. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you a semi-controversial question. I'm curious uh, what your answer would be. So what does Clem think about large language models? Should they be open? And philosophically, you know, when companies like OpenAI argue that some of the models might be too dangerous, how do you think about that whole statement? Yeah, I think they should be safely open because if you, if you look at kind of like the underlying ethical reasoning, so part of the Hugging Face team, we have uh, someone called Irene Soleiman was actually at OpenAI before and, and led the release of GPT-2 in open source at OpenAI before, who is one of the worldwide experts in terms of safety of releases of, of models. And when you look at, at the theory behind it, and when you try to avoid risks, you actually realize that open sourcing open releasing and kind of like being transparent and inclusive with these models is actually safer for humanity in the, in the long term. 
an intuitive way to understand that is that by not releasing, not open sourcing, you actually create very big challenges in terms of concentration of power. And you end up with uh, organizations who are able to build, understand models, which are usually big tech or big companies. And then you have the rest of society who is not able to understand and then control this, right? You end up with public organizations, with governments unable to understand and create regulation that makes sense. You end up with underrepresented populations who are not able to voice their concerns about some of these biases, the biases that you do find in there. So you create a gap, which makes it actually much more dangerous than if you don't have this gap. And that's why, for example, science, right? If you, if you look at science in general, it's always been open and, and collaborative, you know, like the scientists, they publish, they publish their research papers. It's kind of like uh, integrated by, by the community and by society because that's kind of like the safest way to progress technology versus kind of like building this behind closed doors and keeping them behind closed doors where you create this uh, gap of understanding and ability to, to control between a few organizations that are monopolistic and, and kind of like keeping control and, and rest of society. This is probably one of those long topics that we could get into, though I have a particular view, which I think is like philosophically aligned with yours, which is why we probably get along well on topics such as these. But I always have tried to summarize this down. There's a saying, which is you want to put something out into the light, you'll understand what's going on, like that sort of thing. But how often have we been burned in the past as society in the world for blindly trusting X, where X is whatever it is. And it's almost a universal truth where if you put your blind faith, trust in X, it bites us, whether that be an institution, a, a program, a, a process or whatever, it doesn't work. Whenever I run into somebody who's having this conversation with me, I'm like, great, like imagine, you know, the IRS is one of these. The IRS is this one massive big black box where you have no idea what's going on inside this thing. You have no idea what's happening. And how often do we get frustrated by this? Now, a lot of people argue that, well, that wouldn't happen in the AI space or the model space because these, these companies don't have the, that same sort of structure. I, I just don't believe it. The history, history has never once proven that blind faith trust in X will work out in the long run for humanity. It always degrades. So therefore, our reaction to that as a society that started in code was to open the things so that no one person or one entity can do that. And it just feels like we're having the exact same discussion that we had about open source software 25 years ago, and we're doing it again, but thankfully people like you exist in the world and the academic and the scientific community is pushing it forward too. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, how do you see the the conversation? Obviously, we're in, in early days of that conversation. You know, how do you see it evolving over the next, you know, two, three years? And, and more broadly, obviously, the space has just gone through such transformational change this past year. Like, where do you kind of see us in five years? It's an interesting question. Uh, we've learned to stop trying to predict things <laughs> too much because we've been proven wrong so much with the speed of the evolution of the field. It's kind of like an amazing thing. I, I don't think you've seen in the past a field that is becoming so mature, so mainstream, 
and still moving so fast at the, at the same time. It creates a very, very unique challenges that we haven't seen the, in the past. I think what we're starting to understand now is that machine learning is a new paradigm to build old tech. You know, like it's this analogy from Andres Karpati, you know, like software 1.0 was like the first paradigm to build software. That's what we've been doing for, for the past 15, 20 years. Now we're entering a new paradigm, right? Which is using machine learning to build all technology. And so I think in, in five years, every single technology company is going to build with machine learning. As a matter of fact, maybe we won't even call it, you know, AI or, or machine learning then because it's going to be so ubiquitous and it's going to be really kind of like the default way to build all technology that you won't even need kind of like a, a name for it. Right. And it seems like you're, you're starting to see, obviously, a lot of, it seems like even in the last few months post-ChatGPT, a lot of, you know, newer industries or folks kind of come and explore use cases. You know, I'm, I'm curious what then role Hugging Face plays around some of those new use cases. Like, for example, I thought it was really interesting. You, you know, you hired a machine learning engineer to kind of focus on healthcare and biotech. I'm sure there's lots of different verticals of, of which are, you know, exploring these models. You know, how do you think about where you guys play in helping each of those, you know, specific verticals? You know, is it kind of just community engagement, some set of like tailored products for those markets? How, how have you been thinking about it? Well, I mean, the first interesting thing is that we're really seeing the whole field and all the domains getting more homogeneous than they were before. Before it was very siloed, right? You had NLP, you had computer vision, you had audio, you had uh, ML for biology. Now, because technologically speaking, you're starting to use the same architectures for, for all, right? Uh, namely, namely transformers. You are starting to kind of like break the barriers between all these domains. And, and that's what we're seeing on Hugging Face with uh, more and more people sharing biology, chemistry, time series models. And our, our goal as a company is really to provide the right foundational platform for all companies to be able to do this paradigm switch, right, from traditional software to, to machine learning. And so that means kind of like um, bringing on the community, right, of researchers sharing models and companies using these models. That means adapting our tools. So, for example, one feature that is very popular on the Hugging Face platform are spaces, right, the ability to create demos very, very easily. And the spaces for molecule prediction, uh, models are going to be a little bit different than, than the spaces for text generation, right? So we need to adapt and create more capabilities uh, for all these new domains. And then the hardest thing, and actually I think that's, that's the main reason why most of the companies are, are using our platform, we need to build the right abstractions for it to be future-proof. Right, I think what companies want to do when, when they use the Hugging Face platform is to make sure that what they build today is not going to be obsolete in six months, right? Uh, so something we're thinking a lot about is, you know, how do we build the right abstractions, the right tools that are going to be used not only today, not only in one year, but in, in five years, in 10 years, in, in 15 years, so that companies can take advantage of the evolution 
of the new models, of the new architectures, but at the same time not get lost on them and have to start from scratch over and over again. How do you think about that? I mean, I'll shamelessly ask because I think that's, that's such a big question in the space right now. I feel like there's, you know, you have the existing state-of-the-art models and I feel like so many people are optimizing around, okay, here's how GPT-3 works today. Let me get really good at prompt engineering. Who knows if that's going to be a part of models in three, five years? Like, how do you think about, I guess, what are like, no matter what changes happen in the underlying models, these are blocks that are important versus, you know, maybe this is just kind of a moment in time thing that we don't need to focus on as much. So first you think about it and you make it a priority <laughs> much more than in the previous paradigm, I think. And and that comes from our heritage of, you know, having started to think about this like uh, six years ago now. And for example, if you look at our open source libraries and, and if you look at like the main maintainers of the libraries and how they reply to comments, how they prioritize the different pull requests, the different issues, they actually talk about this a lot and are doing a lot of trade-offs uh, in terms of like making it like future-proof and, and stable versus jumping on every single trend and, and breaking everything, making a lot of breaking changes and, and things like that. Then the second thing is, um, and I think that's one of the things that made us successful, is having the full range of understanding from very, very specialized science to commercial usage of it. Uh, it's something kind of like unusual for, for startups. I think you don't have a lot of startups that have kind of like these full range of capabilities. And it, it comes from our story of being three founders with like the, the full scope. But that allows you to have kind of like the long-term science evolution in mind, while at the same time kind of like building for companies and for final use cases. So that kind of bridges the gap between science to, to production, which is also something that is a bit different for machine learning than it used to be for, for traditional software. So these would be, would be I guess, the, the two main things. And then the last one is, and, and Jason, you've, you've seen that with, with GitHub, I'm, I'm sure, but when you've started to be this uh, centerpiece for, for the community, the community itself is is helping you a lot on that, right? Because they're keeping you honest. They're you know telling you when when you fuck up what they what they've been building when you when you slow them down. So like relying on the community and being community driven is also like a a good way to make sure that what you're doing is is useful right now and and kind of like a future proof for most of your community members. Speaking of community. What's next for hugging face in this way? And let's talk about, you know, your one, already explosive growth, but two, how you maintain community balance and monetization at some point too. How do you, how do you approach that problem? Yes, uh, we have a lot of exciting stuff for, for the community. As I was mentioning, we're really excited to interact more with the community in, in biology, in chemistry, in, in time series. That, that's one. We're also working on building more tools around uh, science and science papers because uh, we feel like there's a lot of interesting things to, to do there, especially connecting more science papers to the models themselves that we have on the hub, the data sets uh, and, and the demos. We also have uh, interesting um, support of the startup ecosystem so one of our earliest investors, Matt Hartman, who was at BetaWorks, is launching soon uh, a fund that is dedicated to helping and, and funding 
startups of the hugging face ecosystem. So we're pretty excited uh, about that. So a lot of stuff on the community side. Then when it comes to your question around, you know, how to do the trade-off between, you know, community and, and monetization. The interesting thing is that this problem hasn't come so often yet on kind of like our day-to-day decisions, especially because I think we've been pretty clear on the delimitation between, you know, what are things that are really contributing to the community, right? So for example, companies sharing in open source their models, which we think is creating a lot of value for the community. And so that's something that we'll always keep in the free tier of the of the platform compared to, you know, companies that are, for example, using without open sourcing, which are using, you know, at scale for commercial use cases, which are pretty clear kind of like paid offering. So right now we have, um, so you said 10,000, we actually at, at 15,000 companies using us. Most of these companies, they're uh, using us for free, but we have uh, 3,000 companies that are now customer of ours, ranging from you know, companies like uh, like Microsoft, like Bloomberg, uh, all the way to, to small companies like Grammarly, for example, and, and all the way down to kind of like smaller startups or, or people starting with their with their machine learning uh, projects. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it seems like the, you know, the dream for a lot of these companies is to be the one you, you mentioned, obviously, so many companies are now considering, you know, or, or kind of seriously adopting their own ML use cases. And it feels like uh, on the startup side, you know, the dream is to be able to be the partner for those companies, the Microsofts, the Bloombergs of the world as they as they kind of go through this journey. And I'm curious, like, obviously, you know, people are using your models and they're and they're, they're taking models off hugging face. You have other companies that are kind of close to the open source community, like stability that are trying to, you know, work closely with companies. And then you have other folks that say, all right, take your model off hugging face, but then talk to us. We'll be the ones to kind of bring you on that journey. How do you think about ultimately like who earns the right to kind of be that partner to a Bloomberg or to, you know, some of these other companies around helping them do this ML transformation? Well, I mean, at first, I think there's going to be multiple very successful companies, right? Given kind of like what we're seeing with machine learning becoming the default to build all tech, the same way you have like a number of $100 billion plus companies, technology companies today, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years you would have like multiple hundred billion dollar machine learning companies, right? Just just because of the size of the of the opportunity. Um, so fundamentally, I, I don't worry too much about you know uh, competition and and what other people are doing. If you look very closely at what everyone is doing, they all bring something kind of like different to the table and are kind of like a different approach to the market. I think overall, it it just brings the field forward and and kind of like uh, accelerates the the adoption of of machine learning. So I think it's it's all kind of positive. We actually, you know, are lucky to be able to collaborate with with everyone, right? From uh, companies like like Stability hosting, you know, stable diffusion on on Hugging Face, uh, OpenAI open sourcing models like like Whisper that are on Hugging Face. Yeah, because ultimately, as I said, we, we think there's room for multiple companies to, to be successful and all of them are really contributing to the democratization of, of good machine learning. 
you obviously do so much great work kind of teaching people about AI through courses you do. You obviously, you know, work closely with these companies. Curious, like, where do you think things ultimately shake out with companies and, and their own AI teams? We have one version of that world today. You could imagine a world in which, you know, people double down even more and these teams get massive or, you know, in some senses, it makes sense to outsource some of these parts or I'm sure something in between. Curious both like what trends you're seeing today. And then, you know, if you fast forward five, 10 years, like what is the, the AI team at a typical enterprise look like? So first, I think uh, all tech teams will be AI teams in the future, right? Like, as I said, because it's like the new paradigm to build all tech. I'm not even sure we're going to call it AI teams or ML teams or ML engineers. But I think if you're building a technology product today, you need to do some, some machine learning. And one strong intuition that I have is that companies are not just going to use or like outsource machine learning, they're going to build machine learning. You know, like same way, you know, if you look at the first generation of software, you could have said, okay, there's going to be like a no-code tool for people to do everything. And that's happened in, in some segments, right? You've had, you know, the Squarespace, the Wix, and, and, and these tools like that. But ultimately companies needed and wanted to write code themselves and, and actually build technology because that's the way they cater to their use case. That's the way they create a differentiation compared to others. That's kind of like the sustainable way of, of building technology. Similarly, for, for machine learning, companies who are going to create value are going to want to train models fine-tune models, optimize models, specialized models for, for their own use, use cases. Uh, and we're already seeing it. Like if you look, in my opinion, at like the best startups out there, they're very much kind of like AI native, but also AI full stack startups. Like uh, I think we, we've got recently a new new release from uh, Runway ML, like the, the video editing platform. When you look at what they're capable of doing by actually building AI and not just using AI through APIs or, or others, it's, uh, it's mind-blowing, right? So yeah, ultimately, I think uh, most companies will want to build machine learning themselves. And so most of the tech teams will end up being AI teams. It's a really interesting point about marrying the power of kind of building your own, you know, uh, foundation model with, you know, or your own kind of model for your use case with the application side. And what, what's, um, yeah, what's I think is going to be very exciting is that, and, and Jason, I'm, I'm sure you have like an interesting opinion on that, but it feels like one of the things that obviously uh, the adoption of software and the impact of software in the world has been really, really fast. But one limiting factor for me has been the number of software engineers. Part of the reason has been, in my opinion, because it's kind of like hard to go from, you know, doing like consulting or doing any other type of work to becoming a software engineers, right? It, it takes, it takes some time to master that and to become a good software engineer. But interestingly speaking, in my opinion, it's much, much easier to 
switch and to move from being a software engineer to doing an AI or machine learning engineer, however you call them. So one interesting thing is that maybe the first generation of software actually paved the way for much, much faster adoption and progress and impact for, for machine learning because it's going to be much, much faster to turn all software engineers into machine learning engineers than it used to be turning any other people into, into software engineers. So I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how it plays out, right? And, and see if like uh, maybe in, in four to five years, it's not impossible to think that you're going to have many, many more machine learning engineers or AI engineers than you have software engineers today. And in that sense, uh, I mean, that's an interesting thing that my, my co-founder has been saying, Julien, for, for quite a while, which was a bit uh, controversial at the time, which is starting to be a bit less controversial, is, is that um, he's always been saying that... Uh, uh, software engineering as we understanding today is actually a more subset of machine learning instead of the other way around, right? Machine learning is not so much a, a subset of, of software engineering, but, uh, but the other way around. And that, that's one of the ways maybe we, we're, gonna, we're going to see that happen too. Yeah, I remember Julian saying that for the first time, and I really liked the, the thought behind it because it, it really shows what's going to be past some sort of coding event horizon that we can't really fully see yet you know and i think that's an important thing for us to think about and like you know i think that this is we've already tried to do this in some other ways like, so as an example like clem you and i've had this conversation i've said it on a couple of different podcasts but github says that they've got 100 million developers or something like that in the world at this point um if you look at salesforce when they say how many active sales uh, developers they've got the number is dramatically higher and then you see all these no-code, low-code platforms. And the thought behind what GitHub is doing versus what Salesforce is doing with these low-code, no-code is you're effectively trying to create mechanisms for people to, to become developers of various systems. And it's that old, you know, it's, it's kind of the same way in which I actually view people who are excellent at manipulating Excel as doing programming because of what they're doing, manipulating data in and out. And if you think about what the tools available to them are, they, they're so primitive. The fact that we have to type words into the systems or characters into the systems that become words that become fully functional sentences and all that sort of stuff and they compile down and that's the instruction set and I get what we're doing. Even if you have no other exposure to the system but just Copilot and ChatGPT at the moment, you should be able to imagine a world in which everybody has the ability to go create something in the future here really quickly. And whether or not we call all that software development in the future, I don't really care. But the point is other people are creating a lot, a lot more people are now have the capacity to create, have the, you know, the curiosity to create and have clearly, clearly have the, the tools at their fingertips that are available to them to go create. And that is remarkably powerful. Like, you know, and I, I'm super excited for that future and to see what happens with that. Well, Clement, I mean, it's super interesting to get your, your perspective on, on so many of these topics. You know, going forward, we plan to kind of conclude our interviews with a standard kind of rapid fire set of, of the same closing questions. And, and as our first guest, you get to be our guinea pig to test some of these out. And so, you know, to start, I'll, I'll let Jason kick it off because I know he loves the, uh, the AGI question. So, Jason. Uh, oh, I, do. I do. I do. I love the AGI question. Um, and, so, and really, it just comes down to like, what are your actual thoughts on AGI? Yes, no, it's a thing. It's not a thing. If so, it's a thing. Timeline. 
and how close are we today if it is and all that. And like, if you are a believer in the AGI camp and think it's going to get there, what should we expect or think about what comes next after it? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think AGI is, is coming anytime soon. I think I think it's um, it, it's frankly a distraction for for the field, I think, because uh, you don't need to think about AGI to make uh, everything that's possible with machine learning exciting. Just the perspective of, you know, being the new paradigm to build all technology and kind of like unlocking new capabilities uh, that weren't possible before yeah. is, is exciting enough for me. And, and so I'm kind of like more focusing on, on that than, than AGI. I love that perspective. Um, I love that perspective. I guess our, our second question is obviously, you know, I think we're all pretty active on Twitter here, you know, read the same pieces. Uh, I feel like it's the same things that, that get talked about a lot of times in, in the broader AI community. Curious, you know, one thing you feel like is overhyped right now and underhyped kind of in the general uh, discourse. So I would be careful with uh, with Twitter these days. Something that I've noticed <laughs> every day. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's really something that I've I've noticed in the past past few months. Kind of like the the average quality and and truthfulness of of the takes in in AI, in my opinion, has been going dramatically down. So I I, I would be really, really cautious because I feel like now on Twitter, there are a lot of people talking about AI without knowing, knowing much about it. Uh, and a lot of it is, is going viral and, and I'm kind of like scratching my head and like, what, <laughs> what, what, what is, what is happening? You know, I think uh, I, I love uh, generative AI, right? If you think about it as kind of like the way to focus on like new use cases and the ability for models to generate text or, or generate images. What we're seeing is that most of the use cases are today on non-generative AI. So for example, the ability to classify you know, text to do like fraud detection, you know, like time series that we talked about to do like a ETA, you know, search engine or, or still mostly non-generative tasks. Social network moderation is, is done with like non-generative models. So I, I would encourage, uh, yeah, uh, people to um, not, not, not forget about all the non-generative stuff that is also super, super exciting these days. Awesome. All right. Flipping gears entirely from, uh, well, I guess maybe not because that's the fun of the rapid fire, right? You get to completely jump around. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right. So AI regulation and governments, where should, in your opinion, governments and regulation get involved with AI? In my opinion, this should foster more openness and transparency. Um, because as I said before, there's no way to control something that you don't understand. Right. Or they're only bad ways, right? If you want to control and regulate something that you don't understand, you'll only kind of like take the, the, the wrong steps. And so if there is a way to create kind of like a foundational regulation for me, it's to foster more transparency and more openness, because that's what's going to allow regulators everywhere to, you know, start building, understanding more what's what's happening and and then create kind of like the right regulation to to mitigate the risks and make it a positive technology for for humanity 
Well, Clem, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could we could go hours on any of these directions, but I feel like we'd be doing a disservice to the broader ML community to take more of your time uh, away from Hugging Face. And so we'll, we'll let you get back to the day job. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are intrigued by you and kind of what you and the team are building. You know, what's the best way for them to go learn more about what you guys are doing at Hugging Face? Yeah, you can uh, you can take the Hugging Face course. That is like a really good introduction to our ecosystem, right? So hf.co slash slash course. You can follow us on, on Twitter, on, on LinkedIn. You can join join our Discord to join the community. And then explore explore the Hugging Face Hub, right? It, it's very much like GitHub, uh, where you can find a lot of things that people are not talking about, but that are very, very powerful in all sort of machine learning from like text, audio, image, uh, biology, chemistry, time series. So really just um, explore explore the hub. It's, uh, it's a good way to also unleash your creativity about what's possible and not with machine learning. <laughs>